Welcome to the Asian Digital Supermovers interview series on Clubhouse, where we speak to experts, founders, and investors about the Asian digital economy and ecosystem every week. Monica, Mushir, and I, Pratish, invite guests for a conversation about building, scaling, and operating businesses in Asia. Follow our club on Twitter. Our handle is AD Supermovers for providing us any feedback and staying updated on interview series, guests, and topics. Welcome, everybody to another amazing AMA with the Asian Retail Supermovers Club. Thanks to Rajiv, who is the Director of Investments with Cathay Innovation, has joined us for the session. And before we kick off this AMA with him, let me just quickly do a roundup of the club and how the next one hour we're going to spend so that everybody who's joining in has a better idea and understanding. As I mentioned, the Asian Digital Supermovers is a club where we, that is Monica, Mushir, and me, the three co-founders, bring in OG, Asian experts, founders, and investors to talk about everything that's happening in the Asian economy on the digital and technology side. And over the last few months, thanks to everybody who's participating with the club, we have seen tremendous growth. Now we are, I think, close to seven and a half thousand members and followers, which is amazing. And that's purely thanks to all the members as well as guests like Rajiv who have joined us previously and will join us in the future. So I would suggest that you can bring in everybody who's interested in the topic today. We will be talking to Rajiv about investing in seed and growth stage ventures in Southeast Asia and a quick brief about him. So he started his career in 2005 with AT&T, very fast in the organization, landed up in consulting with top consulting firms, then went on to do his MBA as well. And thereafter, he has been in the startup investment space and now an investment director with uh, Cathay Innovation. So welcome, Rajiv. I appreciate it. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Brilliant. So let's kick this off on that. Let's kick off this conversation with just tell us about your journey and um, your path from AT&T to Cathay Innovation. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think you hit a lot of the the high notes, but I'll fill in some of the detail. So as you mentioned, I started uh, my career at and doing corporate development, corporate strategy for a gentleman named John Stanky. And John's the current CEO of, of AT&T. So in, in hindsight, I should have just stayed <laughs> and stuck around with John. But I got bored of just focusing on the telco sector and, and wanted to broaden my horizons. I'd worked a ton with Bain and, and with BCG on, on engagements in Dallas and took the opportunity to move into consulting via an MBA at Cornell. I spent three years at the Parthenon Group before I was headhunted to lead Booz and Company's private equity practice, focusing on the technology sector. And it's, it's actually there that real intersection between SaaS and SaaS deals and, and M&A for private equity that, that sort of got the juices flowing in terms of, hey, I want to do this for a living full time on, on, on buy side. But I didn't have enough of that operational experience. And a couple of places I went to go find that operational experience. One was my wife and I started a company in 2011 a small pet services company that we sold subsequently for a, a good 
chunk of change in 2017. So I got a little bit of operating experience there, but then wanted to do that in a formal tech startup and do that in Southeast Asia. We'll come to why Southeast Asia, but I made my way to Singapore. I'd never been here before this and, and joined a company as CFO, um, raised some capital, did that again at another firm and had gone to know Nick and the team at Cathay off and on for about two years. And it got more serious once Nick, my partner, had moved to to Singapore full time. And I we would constantly discuss deals. And then it got to a point where it it made a ton of sense to 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 join the firm. They were growing the practice, building out Southeast Asia's region. We could talk about why, same reasons why I joined. Oh, sorry, moved to Singapore. And and so it was, it was the right fit at the right time. And as cliche as it sounds, I, I kind of didn't necessarily plan it to be this way. I kind of found my way into it. So for those looking to get into venture, I have no good advice for you, unfortunately. And But I'm happy I'm here. We've made a couple of really cool investments since I joined and a couple of more that we'll hopefully announce in the month of July, um, which I believe personally will be career-defining investments for me. And so, yeah, ex- excited to be here. And that's a little bit about my journey. Great. So can you double-click on why Southeast Asia? So I think Southeast Asia is at its golden stage, the golden period. And and there's many ripple effects, right? So I think you have the after effects of the Western ecosystem bubbling up and the Chinese ecosystem bubbling up. And you found models that work perfectly for a pretty wide range of demographics across a number of countries, but have largely been underpenetrated for decades. And that includes all pick your sector, whether it's fintech, whether it's insurtech, whether it's SaaS, we're like five to 10 years behind everybody. And so what that means is you can deploy capital into a time machine type of model, whereby you have seen something that happened in the US or in Europe or in China five, 10 years ago, and more or less, with some local flavor, that exact idea is going to show up in Southeast Asia and in India um, in, in, in this iteration. And so when, when you think about our firm, we have offices, we're a global fund, right? So we're a $4.5 billion global fund, and we have offices all over the world. And so we, got, we get to get a front row view on all of those developments. So we're like, for example, uh, a really good example of this time machine thinking is Pindodo. So we are early investors in Pindodo. We've seen every single other, you know, Pindodo copycat across the sun. We only found one that has the exact same thesis as Pindodo, and that's another company in Brazil called Fasili. And so the difference between those two investments was like five or six years because Pindodo was in China and it was early and we made that bet based on what we saw. And Fasili was, we made that bet last year, five years later. And it had taken us five years to find another market and another company in another market with the right infrastructure that would have the same effects. And if you follow Fasili's news of Fasili, you'll hear of pretty astronomical growth and pretty astronomical fundraising rounds that, that, that will be closed. And so... If you take that type of thinking, you could apply the same to FinXL and, and our investment Almond. Is I could go on. We take a view of, you know, what works in one place is going to eventually show up in another. And so, if I take that and double click that, 
what you'll find is we've had we, we still don't have verticalized SaaS in Southeast Asia in a more pronounced way. Enterprises still don't buy from local vendors as much as they do from global vendors. And so the, all of that still needs to come. All of the fintech rails still need to be built in some of our neighboring countries outside of Singapore. And so there's a whole bunch of opportunity to still explore. And, and so that's why I feel like we're in the golden period. How it differs from India slightly is, is we also have a regulatory framework that allows us to SPAC easily and exit, get exits easily without the foreign direct investment issues that India may have. And as a, as a result, I actually see Southeast Asia being a much friendlier place to do. India is still going to have all of the economics um, from the population, but Southeast Asia will have a much um, easier time exiting a lot of the, the invested capital that's sort of gone in. Young ecosystem, incredible talent. You're starting to see a lot of companies, talent leave from your major startups and build their own companies in second and third degree companies. And it is a very exciting time to be a founder primarily and then uh, secondarily as an investor in, in the ecosystem in Southeast Asia. Great. Pingdodo is a brilliant example. I think uh, what they have done in such a competitive space and how they have grown is phenomenal. I think we can just have a room just about them. It's just phenomenal. And I think you touched upon multiple points. One thing I would probably try to understand when you say that there are certain kind of regeneration of uh, thoughts and ideas within the Asian ecosystem. So do you think the Asian entrepreneurs, are they improvising or are they innovating? It's a little bit of both, and, and that's a cop-out answer. The truth is, it's a little bit of both. You do have models that are quite unique to Southeast Asia, specifically around peer-to-peer -peer lending, SME finance, bringing out the warungs in a super efficient way. So there's stuff that's localized specifically for Southeast Asia. We have massive amount of investments going into our ag ag agriculture fisheries in Indonesia. And so there's a lot of bespoke thinking that that sort of goes goes into solution there that being said the big headlines are still companies that are uh, localizing very big ideas that have come from somewhere else but that's not a bad thing that's just to be expected i think if you think about it, the earliest vc really showed up in southeast asia in like 2010 2011 so we're we're like 10 years from first institutionalized capital and so it's, it's really this second and this third wave over the next, you know, decade or two, where you'll start to see real innovation for deep populations within Southeast Asia. The, the truth is, it's eight countries, it's 40, 50 different languages, four or 500 million people, depending on how you cut up the geography and what you include or don't include. And so it's incredibly diverse population, right? And so you have to innovate for local. Otherwise, you're largely dead in the water, especially if you want to be a regional, want to be a regional player. And so, yeah, I'd say a lot of the models are copycats. A lot of the headlines are copycat models. But you're really, I'd say in the last three or four years, you're really starting to see a good cohort of startups that are focused on, on, on building Southeast Asia first ideas. Brilliant. So before we move ahead, just wanted to reset the room. So welcome everybody who has just joined to the Asian Digital Supermovers Club. We are having a conversation with Rajiv, who is investment director with Cathay Innovation. 
and I have kept the hand raise off for the next 15-20 minutes. Uh, it will open it up to for you to actually raise your hand and ask any questions and make comments to Rajiv's inputs. So moving on, Rajiv, you talked about SPAC, you talked about founders, and a few other points, and we will touch upon one by one. So what are your views on SPACs? They're, they're, they're two divided worlds, right? Uh, yeah. On that thought. Yeah, we have we have a SPAC at Cafe, so I'll be I'll be a little careful about what I say. I will say that as as long as you're as long as you have a company that has incredible governance and an idea that can span beyond country, beyond the region, I think it's a really good thing because it's a really good path to liquidity. It's a really good path for the founders to just continue their journey as, as public companies. And so I think generally it's healthy. What happens though is intent and execution are quite divergent. And so intent is to create faster go-to-market liquidity. Execution is everyone's trying to do it. And then you have a long tail of really bad examples or really bad behaviors that perform poorly uh, on the public markets and then spoil it for everybody else. And so I think institutionals need to have that discipline. I will say though, that the good one of the good things I've seen is a couple of our companies in our portfolio have been um, spacking, and and what we've seen is that the market, from what it was two or three months ago, has softened a bit. And, and what that tells us is that institutionals have put a bit of a break and raised the bar and what makes the threshold. And I personally think that's really healthy for uh, for the instrument and then for us in the region specifically. The way I view it is I hope SPACs are around as viable vehicles long enough for, for the IDX and for the SGX and for the Hong Kong Stock Exchange to build a set of products and the infrastructure to allow for tech companies to, to go public, which is not the case right now, but may be quite different in, in, in 12 to 24 months from now. Got that. So moving ahead, and as an investor, Southeast Asia, as you mentioned, right, is a very heterogeneous market. When you're looking at a business or a startup, how do you gauge their fitment or a hypothesis to capture such a market when you're making an investment? Yeah, there's a few ways to cut that. Very rarely will will I look at something for local local country consumption. So, for example, if you're a Vietnamese startup and your entire market's in Vietnam, to to us that's that's not super exciting yet. And so we have this regional views. There's obviously exceptions to that rule. We made an investment that'll that that you'll hear about in a marketplace that's growing at 12 times year on year. And and that's based in one country, and but the country is large enough that they can build a five billion, ten billion dollar business in that country alone. And so for for so it's, it's scenario dependent. These days, actually, what I'm focused on has nothing to to do with Southeast Asia, because what what we're starting to see is that there's massive product opportunities where product teams are being built here, the products being built here. But then the end market is in Australia or it's in Japan or it's in the US or Europe and they're doing really well. We just invested in a series B of a company which will be announced soon as well where the product was exclusively built in Singapore. The market, the product team, the CTO, all of them are built based in Singapore. 
but but product market fit was found in the U.S. and that company's built ten fifteen million dollars of revenue in the U.S. in a very competitive space just doing that. And so that's another thesis that we're focused on. And so I know I'm not answering your question appropriately, but it's all over the place in terms of regional versus local country versus product team here, but market somewhere else. And I think you touched upon a great point in terms of the product being built in Southeast Asia or in Asia. Probably I would include India there. The interesting thing is that I probably I understand and all the listeners do understand that building a product for the American market for a business or a team based in Singapore, it's relatively easier. But how do you see products being built for non-English speaking markets like Japan or South Korea, where, as you mentioned, there, there are potential success happening in those markets? So how is that happening? Yeah, so we we have a we have a portfolio company called Coherent, who is trying to break into Japan for their enterprise SaaS for insurtech, insurance the insurance sector, and they were trying to break into SaaS for into Japan for a really long time, and and what they decided to do was hire a local team, build a product locally in collaboration with the local team, and then distribute it in sales and marketing through Japan, and that worked flawlessly, and they've built a pretty substantial book of business that that sort of comes out of Japan. And it can be done. I think with Southeast Asia, you've got such a melting pot of the rest of Asia. So in Singapore alone, you've got a massive um, set of Japanese talent, Korean talent, Korean investors, Japanese investors. You've got a bunch of Australian talent, talent from the West, talent from the States. And so I think that assimilation of culture, language, is much easier to do from here and to export out because there's the sort of global mindset and it, and it really shows up where in UX and UI and in customer success. And I think that corridor is a lot more powerful than people give it credit for. And so while a number of investors and VCs are chasing the big ed tech company in Southeast Asia, I'm focused on what's the next piece of software that's going to be built out of here. What's the next Zoho? What's the next Freshworks that's going to get built out of here and and exported to to another market? And, and we're seeing starting to see a lot of those. The more that we look, and I'll tell you, the future looks quite bright. And I'll make a bold statement. I'll say, as as far as I'm concerned, the future of SaaS will not be from the U.S. I think it'll be from Israel. I think it'll be from Eastern Europe, and I definitely think it'll be from South Asia, Southeast Asia. Why do you think so that's going to happen? So I think it's going to happen for a bunch of reasons. I think in the last four or five years with America's immigration policy, I feel like they they took a couple of steps behind in history as far as talent flows is concerned. And then in addition to that, so that's just, you know, taking an American view and coupled with those talent centers moving back to really robust startup and technology zones, so Bangalore, Bombay, Singapore, a little bit of Indonesia, a little bit of Hong Kong for this part of the world, and obviously China. And so as a result, you've got ecosystems that are being pumped with billions, in some cases trillions of dollars of capital that will eventually yield quite a substantial amount of results downstream. And if you look at portfolio companies of most major tier one VCs in India, you probably start to see this recurring theme of founders who are building things for a year or two in India and Bangalore 
And then once they find a little bit of product market fit, move over to the States to, to, to continue building out that journey. And I think that's going to be a recurring theme that we see as, uh, as part of SaaS, which is one of my areas of focus. And so I'm hugely excited about where, where prospects go from here. Great. Thanks, everybody who's just listening in. We will be opening up hand raising in the next five minutes for just after a few more uh, questions. You have recently shared an article about ex-grab employees going on to becoming founders and um, building some successful startups. So can you double click on that thought and how do you see that ecosystem evolving? And yeah, what is sure. the impact of that? Sure. The, the, the healthiest ecosystems are ones where the companies become so large that employees have a really good time, are able to cash out a lot of their equity and go found their own companies. And those companies do really well. And, and that's a sign of, a, of an ecosystem that's thriving and re- creating new, new upstarts. And, and then it, that's backed by a VC ecosystem that constantly is putting up the capital to support, support the ecosystem. And so if you could look at that right lens and you look at like how many startups came out of folks from Flipkart or from Paytm or from Grab or from Gojek, Tokopedia, Bacala Park, it's tremendous. There's, they're in the hundreds. And so for me, that's the number one sign that the ecosystem is a thriving, b growing up, c rewarding its people in almost a self-sustaining manner and and that there's enough return on those investments for VCs to continue making investments in the region and regions and for LPs to continuously support them. And so that was the genesis behind the article. And it's something that we're starting to witness because as I mentioned, I think I mentioned on this article as well, but we've gone from being describing people as ex Goldman or ex McKinsey or ex whatever to, hey, I'm X Grab or X, you know, PTM or X Neom. And that's a really powerful thing. Great. Yes, I agree. And I think India is definitely seeing this kind of evolution as well, which is amazing. And probably, and now these founders themselves are getting exits who are able to uh, reinvest uh, that capital into newer founders and newer tech, which I'm assuming is creating a very... Uh, cyclic process it is i i do a little bit of angel investing and i'm competing with founders on angel investments which is crazy but but a really but a really healthy thing nonetheless yeah exactly i think the other point to to touch upon and i have opened up uh, hand raise so if anybody's interested to ask any questions make observations please do raise your hand and we will pull you up moving on you had mentioned that you are gun ho about or you're positive about consume now and pay later industry. So can you throw some light on that and what do you see is the opportunity there and how it's going to evolve? So on, on buy now, pay later, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. The opportunity that we see now isn't even 5% of what the opportunity is when these companies will be fully formed. And, and and what I mean by that is most of a firm, Clarina or Take Southeast Asia, Finexcel, who in full transparency were, were an investor in, most of their success is on the back of 
the e-commerce market growing in abundance and having an embedded solution within the e-commerce checkout. So when you check out, you have three options. You can pay with your credit card, pay with your with your Apple Pay, or pay with your buy now, pay later in three installments or whatever. And almost 100% of their revenue comes from e-commerce today. But tomorrow, there's this opportunity to go brick and mortar and embed your buy now, pay later into your offline retail transaction. And that opportunity is 20 times the size of the current opportunity, which to me means that Finexcel as it stands is already the largest fintech in Southeast Asia, but there's at least 20 times more growth compared to where it is right now, which puts it in the 30s, 40s, $50 billion market cap type of company when this thing plays out. I think consumption is not going to stop. I think people want to pay in, 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 in certain ways with certain points or with cards or in certain ways that are appropriate to them and at time points that they want to pay. In. And so as long as buy now, pay, pay later stays on the side of being a little bit more responsible than the traditional credit card and the interest rates and credit card debt and all that, I think you have an opportunity to, to have a significantly larger impact than which I think like Affirm and Clarina combined are like forty billion in market cap. But to me, those are like four or five hundred billion dollar companies by themselves, fully fully played out. Now, the one thing that could stop that in its tracks completely is regulations. If you start to regulate them like banks, then then that obviously change thing. I do believe some regulations coming. That's obviously going to pour a little bit of water on the growth, but that doesn't necessarily change the size of of the overall opportunity. Got that. Actually, that uh, brings me to a point I wanted to ask you earlier. What are your views on the the merger between Tokopedia and Gojek? I was going to bring that up when you talked about our companies imitating or are they innovating in Southeast Asia and whether it's organic or inorganic, I'll let you figure out. But, you know, to me, that's an opportunity of innovating in, in, in the purest sense where you have really interesting consumer business models that when combined allow you to create an end-to-end solution set for the vast majority of what consumers need from marketplace to stuff that they buy to their travel to their food to their payments and so for me that's a pretty powerful pretty powerful model i think the deep the devil and the detail will be in how they execute on that m a and and how they execute on their go-to-market post merger but but the magnitude of what they can go out and build and go out and create is is almost limitless and if you think about indonesia as a country 300 million people relatively low penetration on internet and internet services there's such a vast opportunity to go tackle to digitize that entire population i i still see multiples on on that share price over time especially if you comp it with uh, c group that's uh, it's done incredibly well. Then this has multiples to go. Great, thank you. Before we move ahead, let me quickly reset the room. Welcome everybody to the Asian Digital Supermovers Club. And we have three co-founders, Monica, me, and Mushir. We do AMAs with, well, we call them OG. Experts, founders, and investors. Today we have Rajiv, he's the director with Cathay Innovation. 
And every week we bring on these experts from different industries in the digital Asian ecosystem. So if you're interested in these conversations, do follow the club. You just need to click on the greenhouse icon and you'll be able to follow the club. You can follow the moderators and Rajiv as well if you're interested in similar topics going forward. So as Chandra, sorry if I'm not butchering your name, Chandra Kant. Yes, Chandra Kant. Uh, Hi, I go ahead, ask your question. Actually, I just wanted to ask basically, what growth do you foresee in, uh, say, Southeast Asian region, uh, seeing the digital reach which is increasing in India basically? Now, earlier, uh, the people, they were not connected, say, rural India, they were not connected to, say, this, um, to the, say, urban areas and all. But with the growing digital reach, and the government is also stressing more on this, this uh, uh, networking and all. So, what um, size of market do you foresee in days to come? So it's, thank you for the question. It's hard to put a number in terms of size of the market outside of saying something that's absurdly large. See, uh, right now, like right now, we have grown, uh, the Android user in India has gone up to 76 crores, which was earlier, say, uh, four years back, it was 20 crores. Yep. So that number itself speak about the, uh, the size of market which is emerging Say for all the startups, whether you talk about a fintech industry, agri-tech industry, sure. insurance tech, the whole site uh, you talked about pay, buy now, pay later. So all sort of thing, these things are grow, uh, it's going to grow up. And what, say, uh, the potentiality you, do you foresee? Sure. So if you, if, you take, if you take, for example, the population of Southeast Asia, as it's traditionally defined, it's, I don't know, six, seven hundred million people. Internet penetration, cell phone penetration is high, internet penetration is not as high, and so still a long way to go. But then more important stat is not, do I have an internet-based device in my hand? It's, is that device digitized? Am I consuming content? Am I making payments? Do I have a bank account online? Do I, do, have I automated a good portion of my life online? And so from that perspective, we're only scratching the surface. We're only hitting tier one cities up until this point. So we're hitting Singapore, Manila, Jakarta. We're not going deep into Indonesia just yet in a digitized fashion. We still haven't built out logistics to, to automate the logistics segment across the, entire, across the entire region. So when I say how big, where I think this opportunity is going, we're literally in the first couple of minutes of what I think is going to be a massive digitization exercise and a massive digitization opportunity for these populations. And by the way, I, I still believe that that's a similar opportunity for India. Just because you've got a lot of cell phones in people's hands doesn't necessarily mean that they're consuming services in tier three and tier four cities just yet. Doesn't mean that they're still you know banked appropriately. Doesn't mean that they're insured appropriately. And so all of those things still need to come wage distribution, tax management, all of that stuff still needs to come. And uh, we're starting to see just the very beginnings of it. And in many cases, we're not seeing any of it. And so when I think about the opportunity for where we are versus where we'll be in like 15, 20 years, it'll be vastly different. And to me, that's, uh, that's quite exciting. Great. Thanks uh, for the question. Chandrakant, if anybody else has a question, please raise your hand and we'll bring you up. So moving ahead, Rajiv, you yourself host a clubhouse session called Human Side of the VC. Yep. 
So tell us what are your key insights from conducting that and what have you actually learned speaking to probably the most leading VCs from the Southeast Asian ecosystem? Yeah, sure. So in, in terms of, I compare VCs in the States to, to VCs here, and I'll say culturally, and by, when I say here, Southeast Asia and India, and I'll say culturally, for some reason, the leverage is shifted. In, in the States, the founders have all of the leverage. They're the ones doing the hard work. They're the ones building the companies every day. The VCs are just happening to find the ones that make the most sense and back them. But it's the founders that, that, that sort of are put on the pedestal. And if they fail, that's okay. They'll get back up and do it again. And if they're successful, they're celebrated. I find it in Southeast Asia and India, for the most part, with the exception of a few, but for the most part, it's the other way around where the VCs, for some reason, are given more respect than the founders and put on a pedestal. And, and I think that's because of how capital flows were, where there's so little institutional capital and so much demand uh, for it. It'll change, but that's how I see it now. And so there's a little bit of this like God complex, which I want to try and unpack in, in a lot of the episodes that we did. And what we try to uncover it was really and truly sense the human side of the VC. What where do they what are they like at home? What do they value? What do they not value? Where have they made mistakes? What are the shittiest investments, best investments, well, ones that they pass on that they regretted? And it's bringing everybody onto a level playing field. And what I found was there, there shouldn't be a golf complex. Most folks are super approachable or mother or father of kids and they go to school and they deal with the same problems that everybody else does. And so it's really just trying to humanize a little bit of that and make folks a lot more approachable with the hope that the founders in the room that were listening could learn a couple of things that, that sort of make these VCs seem a little bit more normal and hopefully a little bit more approachable and use that in the contact, uh, content as part of their outreach. And so that was the idea behind, uh, behind Human VC. And we're working on season two at the moment, and so that, that should be up fairly shortly. Brilliant. So... Among all the things and the industries that you have looked at, and obviously a lot of startups and industries have got a lot of attention during the COVID uh, crisis, which industry do you think hasn't got the attention that it deserves or needs to get VC's attention? I think ag and fishery is one. I think alternative meats is another one. It's just those are really hard to fund because it requires deep technical understanding. I think there's a few parts of the life sciences value chain that, that sort of sit within that segment as well, testing as well. We've just gone through a pandemic, and Lord knows that you know all over the world our medical devices and our medical infrastructure sucked uh, and couldn't handle the volume and the volumes of testing and all sorts of other things. And I feel like startups should be addressing that in a more permanent fashion but you rarely hear of startups, SMEs get a lot more attention than versus startups in the medical space and the life sciences space. So I feel like those are the big ones. Again, for me specifically, I sort of play in, in, in the places where no one else really wants to look because it's boring. Insurance, customer success, sales enablement, and SaaS, little bits and pieces of fintech, bits and pieces of borrowing knowledge management. For me, my I, I sort of don't get distracted by all of that other stuff that, that, that VCs are chasing. I'm focused on a couple of things that, a couple of topics that I really enjoy. 
Brilliant. Before we go into the rapid fire, I think my last question would be, Asian startups more so, I think haven't been able to actually expand outside their country or maybe some of them have to probably within Asia, but haven't been able to really create a mark in the Western world rather. And we see the opposite, like almost all Western top startups have a footprint in Asia. Why hasn't this happened for the Asian ecosystem yet? There are a handful who have been able to go across, but a majority of them are still within the region or at least within their country. When you, when you say Asian, are you talking about China and India as well? Yes, I think Southeast Asia probably is what I would look at. But yeah, if you have any views on China and India, please go ahead. Yeah, so I think there's really two two parts to it. It's uh, talent flow and capital flow. Talent flow was headed westwards and has been for decades. And the compounding of that has showed up in, in the birth of numerous industries, the tech one being the largest or most obvious benefactor, but in, in a whole host of others in the sciences and in other STEM topics. Talent flow from east to west has been generations and generations, and that's got to have a sustained effect for us X number of time. Obviously, in the last 20 years, you've had immigration that's made it a lot harder for that talent flow to to stay and, and build lives in, in the West. And so you start to see a lot of talent come back, more so in the last five years than in the last 20. And so the compounding effect of folks coming back or folks never leaving to go you will start to show up in the next decade or two. So that's one. The second one is capital flow. Um, and and uh, capital being in abundance in one region and not so much in, in the others, up, up until very recently. And so there's compounding effects to the deployment of that capital as well. And so that part needs to play itself out as the sort of playing fields get leveled. And the bonus one that nobody talks about is this culture around celebrating failure. In the West, it's completely okay to fail and pick yourself up, brush yourself off, start over again. Not so much in the East. And I'd say that's changing, but at a much slower place than I would have hoped. It was actually quite a big culture shock around how how failure is treated here when I moved here. And so as a result, it's it's one of those things that, that I think will take a lot of time to, to correct itself before it can give us compounding effects there. So I'd say, you know, number one is talent, number two is capital, and then there's a third one around just being cultural. Once you get those three things, and I think you're seeing abundance of capital, both from the West and from the East, in the East now, you're seeing an abundance of high caliber talent here with really great experience now and so as a result i expect the compounding effects of that to show up in the next 20 30 years uh and so that's why it's uh it's an exciting time to be here great thank you so let's head into the rapid fire are you ready yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> great vcs are in the business of Networking, knowledge management, data sharing. <laughs> the hardest thing about your job? Context switching. I spend a lot of time moving from topic to topic, and they're usually quite varying. It's pretty exhausting to context switch. I'd say that's one. The second one is saying no on something that I really want to do, but is just not a fit for us. And so I try and find a way to at least invest personally or find another firm that it, it would be a better fit for. 
one unicorn you would have liked to invest in? One unicorn I would have liked to invest in. I can't tell you because they're not a unicorn just yet. They will be in like six days when they're announced. But I would have liked to do that round. But I was one round too late. But it's in the fintech space in Southeast Asia. So you'll hear about it shortly. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Rajiv, for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you. And hope to see you again. I really enjoyed it.